Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Great news, true crime addicts. We survived another week. It's Friday, October 29th, 2021, and these are the top true crime stories in the world. Um, no doubt about it, the top true crime story of the week is, um, well, Alec Baldwin shot and killed somebody. Uh, how surreal is that to say? Um, this happened on the set of a movie called Rust in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And this happened last Thursday. Helena, Helena, sorry, Helena Hutchins was the cinematographer, a young woman. Um, she was shot and killed. Director Joel Souza was wounded. And it's just a, it's, it's a complete tragedy. And it's become, it, it's like the perfect storm of everything. It's, it's politics because Alec Baldwin is this liberal progressive, speaks out about uh, gun safety. Um, he portrays Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live. He's been a target of Fox News forever, and uh, and he's he, and here he is in the in the middle of all this. Um, Helena Hutchins, uh, she she was Ukrainian. She actually grew up in the Russian city of Murmansk, on a Soviet military base in the Arctic. Very interesting person, and uh, and you know she she was on a trajectory, man. It's really hard even even today for a woman to uh, be a cinematographer on a on a big movie like this. Um, so what happened here and and who's ultimately at fault? It's a little more complicated than the news would have you believe. Um, now, before I was a journalist, I worked on the sets of of films and and TV shows and uh, uh, commercials. And that's what I did out of college. And I, I started out as a production assistant, uh, which is literally sometimes you're, you're going and, and getting coffee for like John Mayer or somebody. And I worked up to first assistant director. Now, 
I know most people, they have in their minds that they, they picture a movie set and you've got the director there with a bullhorn calling all the shots. And it's not usually like that. Usually, especially on um, lower budget movies, it sounds like this was, the first, assess, uh, the first assistant director is essentially calling their shots. They're in charge of the, the set. They have to know what's going on. They have to know the safety of everything. Um, so that's a part of this, too. The first assistant director on Rust was a guy named David Halls. And there's also this woman, Hannah Gutierrez, uh, who is the armorer on set. And the armorer's job is literally gun safety. You know, you're the one that's in charge of those guns and putting it into the hands of the actors. Here's another piece of this, too. And this is this is a gross part of Hollywood. But um, the people, the crew, they look they generally look down on on actors. Um, I've been told more than once um, by producers and, and writers and, and crew people to treat actors like children, to treat them like little kids because they're, they're full of drama, uh, you know, and it, it, I don't personally believe that, by the way. Um, I, I, my favorite part of, of anything is, is working with, with actors, um, but that's generally how they're looked at. They're, they're treated like, like kids and with, you know, the, the, the slightest touch can set them off. Um, so they would know this, handing Alec Baldwin a gun. Um, the last thing they're going to do is, is make it so that he's responsible for that gun. Um, it, it had to be passed by David Halls. It had to be passed by Hannah Gutierrez. Um, and what you do is when you hand that gun in, and it's not loaded at all, you say cold gun and they know that, that it's, that it's safe, that it's empty. Um, as opposed to hot gun, which means it has a blank in it. It should never, ever, there should never be a gun on set with live bullets. And that seems like what, what happened here because they pulled a bullet out of Joel Souza's shoulder, um, and it passed through Helena's midsection, killed her ended up in Joel Souza's shoulder. What was a bullet doing in a gun on this 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 movie set? It doesn't make any sense. But uh, you know, I would say the least person culpable here is 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 uh, is Baldwin himself because Halls, this first assistant director, was overheard saying cold gun when he handed it to Baldwin. As far as Baldwin knows, it's safe at that point. Um now, Baldwin's also a producer on this, and people have pointed out, oh, he's a producer. He's one of the bosses. But I'm telling you, you know, the only reason his name shows up as a producer on that is because he's the name actor. He's the one that's going to draw people, uh, you know, to the theater, to into the seats, to see this movie in general. And it's, you know, you probably, at that point, usually uh, just a title. So uh, earlier that day, a, a number of the crew uh, walked out, walked away from set, due to the way they've been treated, due to not getting paid on time. So, you know, this it was a chaotic set. And not to say that that's rare. I, you know, every movie set I've been on is, is barely managed chaos. Um, you know, I remember working on this film. Uh, I was assistant director on this film that shot in the west side of Cleveland, um, you know, like almost 20 years ago. And they had this camera rig set up where they were attaching it to the ceiling. And there was a young uh, girl on on a bed below. And it was going to be a really neat shot. The camera was going to rotate as it came down. 
very artistic. But I'm looking at this rig, and I see one of the cables, like, snap, and the camera shutter. And um, I realized that if all the cables went, this camera would fall on this girl, and she probably wouldn't have died. But she'd get, a, like, a broken nose or something. She'd be rushed to the hospital. That'd be it for filming for the next few days. So I, I called it off. I said, you can't, you can't do that. you got to get a different shot. It's not safe. And that, that's, that's one of the things that should have happened on the set. Um, you know what this reminds me of? You know, not, and it, it's not the, the Crow situation. You know, years ago, Brandon Lee, Bruce Lee's son, was, was shot and killed on the set of The Crow um, using a, a, a gun prop. Um, this reminds me more of the Twilight Zone incident. And if, if you haven't heard about this, this is uh, this changed a lot of things in in, in Hollywood and, and safety. This happened on July 23rd, 1982, on the set of the Twilight Zone movie, um, which was based on the TV show. And they divided this movie up into four parts, you know, little episodes within the bigger film. And they got the leading directors of the day to each do a segment. Uh, Spielberg did one. I think Joe Dante did one. Uh, Jonathan Landis was the director of this episode involving legendary actor Vic Morrow. And two child actors, uh, Micah Din Lee and Renee Shinyi Chen. And the story that they were directing, that Landis was directing at the time, involved Vic Morrow playing this crotchety old man who was this racist. And you remember Quantum Leap? Well, Vic Morrow's character would kind of leap into the bodies of these minorities throughout time. And he experienced their persecution. Um, it was, it's a morality tale. Uh, it's a, it was a good story. But eventually he ends up in the body of this Viet Cong during Vietnam, and he's in this rice paddy with these two kids, and they're shooting this scene, and they have a live helicopter for this shot. And it's supposed to be safe, but, um, you know, you're dealing with, you've got the actors there, and this was before CG, um, CGI and all that, and it's a little, a real helicopter. And then they added pyrotechnics, and one of the explosions destroyed that stabilizing thing in the back of the helicopter, whatever you call that. And the helicopter lost control, pitched forward, and the rotor blades came down, decapitated Vic Morrow, killed the two child actors on set. It was extremely horrific. Uh, Landis, a producer, the pilot of the helicopter, and a production manager, they were all charged with manslaughter, but they were all acquitted um, they ended up settling with the families. They gave them lots of money. That was pretty much the end of Landis's career. He never really recovered. Um, so, but here's here's what it changed in Hollywood. From that day forward, anybody on set could yell "cut" and stop the action if they thought it was unsafe. Any you know the production assistant, the caterer, for goodness sakes, um, you know all the way up to the first assistant director. If you thought something was unsafe, you could say, cut, stop. we got to look at what we're doing here. Before that, it was the director, the producer that was, that was king. So there are a lot of things that went wrong on this movie set. And it's a little too simplistic to just point the finger at Baldwin. Um, Brian Laundry is still in the news. Uh, this, uh, probably the last week this will be true, though. Um, the FBI confirmed last Friday that, in fact, the remains found in the Carlton Reserve in Florida were those of Brian Laundrie. Uh, we can kind of see the narrative of what happened here, Gabby Petito being dead. It's, it's not a big leap to assume that Brian Laundrie committed suicide before he could be arrested and put on trial for her murder. 
Here's a silver lining, though. The New York Post reports that five bodies were discovered as the country searched for laundry. Everybody wanted to capture him first. Dog the Bounty Hunter was out there. Everybody going, you know, they wanted to kill this guy. Uh, and in the course of that, they found five other dead people. One of the bodies found was in North Carolina. Uh, this guy named uh, Josu Calderon, 33-year-old man who was stabbed to death. Um, authorities in Wyoming found a missing Texas man named Robert Lowry. They found his body really close to where they found Gabby Petito and determined that he had committed suicide out there. And then there's the case of Sarah Bayard, a 55-year-old woman. Um, her body was found uh, off a highway in El Paso County, Colorado. And the reason she was found is it was very close to where Petito and Laundry had been taking some Instagram pictures. They found another body in California's Yucca Valley Desert. This turned out to be missing young woman Lauren Cho, 30 years old. And her case should have been bigger. We should have been looking for her already. Um, but they've just confirmed that, in fact, those remains are Lauren Cho, who had been missing for months. Um, and finally, there was a body found in a dumpster at a Walmart in Mobile, Alabama. And if that's not the most American way to go, I don't know what is being found in a dumpster at a Walmart in Mobile, Alabama. It was a homeless person. Um, and uh, the reason it was found is they thought laundry uh, had been sighted in that city. So the case is over. Um, you know, uh, everybody was looking to put laundry on trial. That's not going to happen now. Um, I, I hope people can move on. If they can focus that energy on cold cases that need it, they might do some good. Certainly what's not doing any good is flying drones over the laundry's house and putting up pictures of Gabby in laundry's parents' front yard. Um, that just is not a, uh, a good look for, uh, for anybody. So please stop. Um, finally, uh, the other top news story. This is going to be a big story in the coming weeks and probably months. This is the upcoming trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, jury selection begins on Monday, just a couple days. Uh, if you've forgotten who this person is, and there's so much going on in the news with, with shootings these days that it's easy to, to do, but uh, here's, here's the story. On August 23rd, 2020, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a police officer named Rustin Shesky shot a 29-year-old black man named Jacob Blake in the back. Uh, Blake did have a warrant out for his arrest at the time for third-degree sexual assault. Uh, Shesky fired seven times at him, uh, hitting him four times in the back. Shesky said he thought he was going to be stabbed. Um, I can't get the physics to work for that if he was turned away and, and, and heading in that direction. But regardless, um, that's what started it all off. It, um, a, uh, an officer shooting another uh, black man, as has happened so many times over the last few years. Black Lives Matters, um, you know, came out of that. Uh, and the protests happened immediately in Kenosha, Wisconsin. There was, uh, and the protests uh, sometimes uh, devolved into there was some looting going on too. Um, so, uh, one thing that came out in the news last week. Let me find this quote from the judge in the case because this is pretty, pretty wild. Um, 
So Kyle's going to go on trial here pretty soon. Uh, and the this is Circuit Court Judge Bruce Schroeder uh, said that the prosecutors in this case cannot call um, the oh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Let's let's go back. Let's go back. Let's set the scene here because I, I told you how the protest started, but I didn't tell you how Kyle became a part of this. So Kyle Rittenhouse, first of all, he's a 17 year old kid, and look at his picture online. Go go Google it real quick. He's still got the baby fat. You know, he still looks like a little kid. You want to squeeze his cheeks. Um, but he, uh, during these protests, on the night of August 25th, he left his home in Illinois, crossed the state border, and uh, meets up with a friend named Dominic David Black. And Dominic is 19 years old. And what most people didn't know was that uh, Dominic took uh, Kyle gave Dom some money and Dominic bought a uh, AR15 style rifle uh, for uh, with that money because Kyle was too young to buy buy it himself um, that AR15 style rifle you might remember I, I talked about those a lot last week they are the the gun of choice for school shooters uh, it can fire up to 100 rounds um, don't know why you need that for hunting um, so uh, Kyle and Dominic went to the protests to try to, in their words, um, I think their their plan was to keep looters from a car dealership. Uh, there was a confrontation with protesters, and Kyle Rittenhouse is alleged to have shot and killed Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber. I don't think anybody's arguing that, so I, I don't know. We could probably get rid of the alleged there. Uh, and wounding Gage Grosskreutz, shot and killed two people, this 17-year-old kid with an AR-15-style rifle. So this judge, uh, Judge Bruce Schroeder, last week said uh, that the prosecutors in this case are not going to be able to call Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber victims. Can't call them victims. Let the evidence show what the evidence shows, the judge says, that any or one of these people were engaged in arson, rioting, or looting, that I'm going to tell the defense they they can't call them that. They can call them riot, rioters and looters. So let me break that down. So the judge has ruled that the prosecutors can't call the victims victims, uh, but the defense is allowed to call Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber um, looters, rioters, arsonists, as if that matters. Um, so this is this is a case where there's not going to be any satisfying ending. It's going to just it's going to piss people off for the next few weeks, but it's going to be a big story um, because both side, neither side's going to win because uh, the, you've got the 17-year-old being charged with these murders, um, and he's he's he shouldn't have been there to begin with, and and you've got the gun issue there too, but I, I got to tell you, uh, at the same time, he shouldn't be charged as an adult. He shouldn't be an, an in this adult court at all. He's 17 years old. Um, this should be a juvenile case. So you've got that wrapped up in all this too. So this is this is a mess waiting to happen. Um, so yeah, start following that case. Uh, all right, I'll be back in two and two with some cold case updates. All right, and we're back. Uh, some cold case updates. Uh, this 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 week we're all about the Amy Mihalovic case, um, as it 
we came up on the 32nd anniversary of this uh, abduction murder. Um, those that are unfamiliar with the Amy Mihalovic case, this is kind of the big one for me. Um, growing up in Northeast Ohio, uh, I was, both Amy and I were born in 1978. Um, and then in 89, I, when I would go up to my mother's on the weekends. Uh, my parents divorced when I was young. and I'd see my mother on the weekends. She lived in Rocky River. And uh, I'd see this girl's missing poster on all the telephone poles. And I, I kind of, at age 11, became obsessed with trying to figure out what happened to this girl, where she was, who, who took her. Uh, I used to ride my Huffy two-speed bike to Westgate Mall and look for her abductor in the crowds. Um, you know, and, and it was the first big story I pitched when I became a, a, a reporter for Scene back in 2005, I think that was. And and that story became my first book, um, Amy, My Search for Her Killer. So um, this is one I've, I've tracked from the very beginning. Um, those that are unfamiliar with the case, here's, here's the very basics of what happened. Amy Mihalovic, uh, um, it was October 27th, 1989. A man had been calling her at home after she got home from school. There was about an hour where she was home alone before her brother got home. And this guy would call her up, and, and he said, Hey, uh, I work with your mother. Um, she just got a promotion. Why don't you meet me at the Bay Square Shopping Plaza on Friday? I'll take you to get a present, and it'll be our little surprise. Don't tell anybody. And thankfully, she told a couple friends so we know what, what happened. But that Friday, October 27th, it was a warm day. She had ridden her bike to school. She left her bike at school and then walked over to the plaza. It's, a, it's like a quarter mile away, and it's what all the kids would do. They'd go to Baskin-Robbins and hang out there. And uh, two of her classmates saw this man uh, say Amy and then walk over to her, put an arm around her, and uh, walk away. Uh, those two uh, ended up uh, sitting with police for composite sketches, and that's what they based the sketches on. Now, here's here's the here's the the part that just made it so personal to all the detectives involved in the case. Amy was abducted in broad daylight on a Friday afternoon, right across the street from the police station, when every single officer in Bay Village was there. Uh, they had gathered to to shoot this annual you know picture of all their their police. So. Uh, it happened right under their noses um, in a town full of FBI agents and their families. And uh, um, this guy has so far gotten away with it. Amy's body was found uh, a couple months, I, I think it was like 104 days later. Her body was found in Ashland County on County Road 1181 in a wheat field. Um, that's about an hour's drive south of Bay Village in the middle of nowhere. Whoever took her had to be familiar with Ashland County and comfortable enough to blend in in Bay Village. Um, that case has gone on for many years. There's so many suspects in that case. Uh, it, you know, when I started reporting on it, I thought, for sure, the FBI, the police had to know who did it. They just didn't have enough evidence to bring him in. Um, but I was, I was naive. I was a young reporter. I didn't know any better. When I started looking at this case, I, I realized quickly why it was so difficult to solve. And that's because there were so many men that had the means, motive, and opportunity to commit this crime. The best the FBI's ever been able to do is narrow the list of suspects to a top 25 list. 
Now think about that for a second. Um, just last week, the Bay Village Police released uh, a new little clue, a new detail. Uh, and this relates to a curtain that they revealed about five years ago at, at a press conference. Um, they called all the local press up. I was there, and, and they brought out this, this avocado green curtain uh, and said, hey, we found this curtain about 100 you know, feet from where Amy's body was found. We never knew if it was connected or not, so we haven't released – we didn't release that – that little bit for decades, uh, but they did some testing on it and they found animal hair on that curtain that matched. And, and this is, this is somebody had a smart idea back in 89, one of the FBI agents took, um, hair samples from the Mihalovic's family dog and that hair that they found on the curtain, they were finally able to show was an exact match for the Mihalovic's dog. So, they think what happened is Amy had a, one of those her dog hairs ended up on her jeans. Then she was wrapped, her body was wrapped up in that curtain, and the, the hair went from her jeans to the curtain. So we knew that. We've known that for about five years. And this curtain is very specific, too, um, because it didn't start its life as a curtain. It was a bedspread that somebody hand-sewed into a very abnormally shaped curtain. I think if they had released that information back in 1989, even if they didn't know that it was connected, somebody might have remembered this. Now we're dealing with memories that are 32 years old. Where does this curtain come from? Um, last week on the anniversary, they released a little more information and said, we now know absolutely that curtain was used to wrap Amy's body because we have now found one of Amy's hairs on that curtain. So we now know it's a major clue in this case. There are pictures online. Um, if you're interested at all, check it out. Uh, if you have any idea of what that curtain was used for, you know, specifically where the material came from, anything like that, contact the Bay Village Police Department. Um, they're still working the case. There is Channel 3, I'm sorry, Channel 5 uh, News in Cleveland broke the story back in February of this past year that... Bay Village Police got uh, search warrants for property connected to a new suspect in the case. Uh, I did, you know, and, and Channel 5 was real, you know, as soon, as soon as Bay Village realized Channel 5 had that information, they sealed the record in the courts. Nobody else could get it, so except for this one reporter at Channel 5 who had it before anybody else, and he wouldn't share the name of the suspect. Uh, he's a real good guy, now, though. Um, Scott Knoll. Uh, but uh, eventually I did find out who this guy was. I, I'm kind of a lightning rod for information on this case. And uh, I tracked this guy down. He's now homeless. He lives out of his car um, and kind of cruises around the west side. Uh, and I, I did interview him. I, I promise not to release the full interview in, until or if he's ever arrested. But here's here's a a new piece of information regarding that new suspect that we just learned last week. Um, over the years, I've developed what I think are the kind of the top three suspects in Amy's case. I don't know which one of them is responsible, but there are three guys at the very tippy top and one guy kind of over and above those. And if you follow this case, you probably know who I'm talking about. It was a, um, 
uh, a teacher uh, who uh, taught on the uh, the western side uh, and this new suspect uh, went to the same school so it's uh, I've been told that he was a student of this other suspect but uh, absolutely they crossed paths at that school I don't know what that information says it's um, and I haven't been able to track down that suspect again he doesn't answer my messages anymore uh, and on the advice of his attorney so um, some new information in the Mihalovic case hopefully it can move the case forward a little bit I think it's going to eventually rely on DNA or a confession um, but I, I still hold out hope that that case is solved um, I cannot keep up with the DNA Doe Project and the cases that they're solving using genetic genealogy. Um, this one was big last week uh, and involves John Wayne Gacy. They have identified, using genetic genealogy, victim number five of John Wayne Gacy as Francis Wayne Alexander. They finally were able to give these remains uh, a name and... Um, bring some closure such as it is to a family um john wayne gacy you probably heard his name before maybe you've forgotten some of the details uh he was one of america's most prolific serial killers and the circumstances and the details of this case are the stuff of nightmares uh mostly because john wayne gacy he was a he also posed as a clown and he performed at children's hospitals and charity events as Pogo the Clown or Patches the Clown um, and is believed to have murdered at least 33 young men. According to Gacy, he committed all these murders inside his ranch house near Norwich, uh, which is near uh, Chicago, a part of Chicago. Um, he'd lure them in and then, uh, you know, ply them with alcohol or promises of jobs. And then he'd start in on this clown routine. And he's like, hey, I've got this magic trick. Uh, but it involves you putting on these handcuffs. And as soon as the victims would put on the handcuffs, that would be it. He'd start his assaults, um, uh, just, just the details of which are, are just depraved. He'd kill them ultimately. And then he'd put them in the crawl space beneath his house. Uh, they eventually found 26 victims, pieces uh, of, of, of them in this crawl space under his house. Uh, he was sentenced to death. On March 13, 1980, he went to death row at, at Menard uh, Correctional Center, and he was executed by lethal injection at uh, Stateville Correctional Center on May 10, 1994. Um, during the, you know, he admitted to a lot of this eventually. And one of the one of the scariest things I found in his in, in the reporting of, of his crimes is John Wayne Gacy talking about doubles nights. Doubles nights. Those were the nights where he killed more than one person. He'd go out, he'd cruise for these young men, bring them back, he'd kill one. Then he'd go cruising again, bring that second person back, and then kill them. And there, it happened more than once. So Francis Wayne Alexander, where, where did he come from? Um, you know, he, he, when he was identified, his sister came out and explained that, 
uh, Francis Wayne Alexander had kind of distanced himself from the family, told them he didn't want contact, and, and left. So he was never really reported missing, never really looked for. But they always kind of wondered what happened. Um, it's hard, even after 45 years, to know the fate of our beloved Wayne, says his sister, Carolyn Sanders, in a, in a statement released um, last week. He was killed at the hands of a vile and evil man. Our hearts are heavy and our sympathies go out to the other victims' families. We can now lay to rest what happened and move forward by honoring Wayne. Um, so nicely done, DNA Doe Project. Um, one, uh, one last little bit here. Uh, I always find it interesting what their last meals and last words were. This says a lot about Gacy. Um, the day of his execution in 1994, he was allowed a private picnic on the prison grounds with his family. For his last meal, Gary ordered a bucket of KFC, a dozen fried shrimp, french fries, fresh strawberries, and a Diet Coke. That evening, uh, he was visited by a Catholic priest. His final words were, kiss my ass. Um, what an evil person. Uh, but thank you, DNA Doe Project, for identifying and putting a name to another one of his victims. Uh, and as far as pop culture goes, I want to tell you about um, a website and an app that, uh, that I think you're going to be interested in as, as true crime addicts. Um, this website, if you haven't found it already, uncovered.com. Uh, it's a fascinating resource for these cold cases, things that you want to invest some time in. And what they do is they combine data, analytics, and the wisdom of, of communities of armchair sleuths to help solve cold cases. So if you really want to help, if you want to dig into some cases that really need your help, go to Uncovered.com. They've, they've got a page for, uh, for instance, the Maura Murray uh, mystery, uh, Disappearance of Maura Murray. And it has an excellent timeline and, and details of the case for you to start. Um, and there's many, many other cases there. So check that out, Uncovered.com. And there's this new app, uh, Repod. Go check it out um, if you can. Uh, download it. Uh, I'm, I'm on there now. And what this is, is if, if you're into reading, you probably know about Goodreads, which is kind of was billed as like a Facebook for readers. And I love Goodreads as an author of books, because uh, it's another way that I can interact directly with with readers. I get to see their ratings. Um, I do read probably every review of my books on there, um, some of which are really hard. In fact, I <laughs> I don't know what this says about me, but I have the worst review stuck in my head, and I, I hear it all the time. Um, it's a, a review of, I think it might have even been True Crime Addict, but the review goes, uh, and I quote, if this wasn't a library book, I'd stick my gum in it. And that works on so many different levels. It does, because they didn't pay for the book, and, and they still want to destroy it, and they still want to take the shot. So but generally, the, the reviews are pretty good. So thank you very much. So anyways, uh, Repod is to podcasts as Goodreads is to books. Um, it's this this platform where listeners can go on, they can they can review, they can rate, they su can suggest, they can find other podcasts. Uh, podcast creators can go on there to interact with uh, the listeners in the way that they can 
interact with people on Goodreads or Facebook. Um, you can, just like uh, Patreon works, where you have different tiers, you can have these private chat rooms and exclusivity and whatever you want. Um, you know, the, the, the sky's the limit. So check it out. Repod is the name of the app for uh, True Crime Addicts or podcasts in general there. So that's it for this week, crazy week. Um, and in the words of the incomparable Murray Saul, it's Friday. And that means we gotta, 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 are listed in the liner notes at the end of this episode. If you like The Cut of My Jib, please check out my other podcast, Philosophy of Crime. Unless quoted directly from a source, all content should be considered the opinion of the host. That's me, James Renner. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.